The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in July 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Vanessa Redgrave. Hi, Vanessa. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Allow me just to very briefly... It seems almost ludicrous to say what your career has been because you've done so much stage work. You're now celebrating 50 years on the stage, but just some of the highlights. You've appeared in repertory with the Royal Shakespeare Company. You've played Cleopatra in Anthony and Cleopatra in five different productions five different times. Uh, You've been on Broadway in Orpheus Descending, The Lady from the Sea. You won a Tony for Long Day's Journey into Night, and now you're appearing in The Year of Magical Thinking. We certainly know your film work, having won the Academy Award for Julia. You've been in movies as diverse as Blow Up, Camelot, Mary Queen of Scots, The Bostonians, even Mission Impossible. Quite a diverse background, but currently appearing on Broadway in A Year of Magical Thinking, and that's the the, uh, show that's based on the book by Joan Didion. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. It was, it was Joan Didion's memoir that came out in 2005. Now you are portraying her in a one-woman show. Yes, the play that she's written um, that I'm gifted to be performing in is very different from the book uh-huh. because the book uh, concentrates on the death of her husband and consequences, implications, um, and magical thinking. Uh, Crazy thinking, primitive thinking, magical thinking, if thinking, as Joan calls it. The play's focus or story, which is not the main issue in the play, but the actual story of the play is her fighting to keep her sanity and having to believe that her husband will come back to help her save her daughter's life. Well, her her daughter is gravely ill, and her husband has just had a heart attack, and she is basically dealing with those those two personal problems. Yes, or to focus even more um, on on the basis of what you've just said, she's focusing on trying to keep her daughter alive. It's very interesting to me that if the press accounts that I've read are correct, that you agreed to do the show before the script was finished. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Yes. So, as a performer, I mean, obviously there's... Oh, before there was a script that... At all. uh, David and uh, Joan felt was a script that Mm. was going to be a working script. So it's interesting that as a performer, especially of your stature, that you would sign on to a show that was not yet complete. And I'm curious as to what what made you take that leap of faith. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, in fact, every piece of work one does in film, for instance, is in, to some extent a leap of faith because you play a part that, as it appears in the script, that you're told is going to be photographed and filmed and it's you take it on faith that maybe at the end of editing you'll still be in the film (laughs) but on stage when you're agreeing to do a one-person show to not know exactly what at least what your starting point is that's that's remarkable other than the book itself 
Well, I just have a passionate admiration for and trust in Joan Didion and David Hare. Mm. It's as simple as that. So in going into the show, how much were you thinking about playing Joan Didion, the woman that that obviously you've had a lot of opportunity to meet and spend time with, how much were you creating a character that you interpreted from both the script and presumably the book? Well, I'm not playing Joan Didion. Um, the reason why it says in the playbills, Joan Didion dot, 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 Vanessa Redgrave, is because neither Joan nor anybody else could think of anything else to put in a playbill. Um, but quite specifically, neither Joan nor David ever thought of uh, my playing her. Or had they chosen someone else, someone else playing her. No, she's written a play. This is not a documentary that someone else has done on Joan Didion. It is not. It is a play with all the experience, thinking, imagination and extraordinary skills that Joan Didion has. But it's a play. Well, it's I mean, you can't say Hamlet's Shakespeare, can you? But there's as much of Shakespeare in Hamlet and as little as many other um, plays, I would True, say. True, but of course Hamlet wasn't in the room with you as you were <laughs> when when one does a show. Joan Didion certainly was in the room or down the hall or a phone call no, away. No, she was in the room. or yeah. She was in rehearsal with us all the time. And the making the play, um, from the time the first uh, read-through and work through over two days in London last year when David and Joan and I met. Many things had changed before those two days because Joan and David had workshopped the play with, um, I'm not sure whether it was one or two actresses, but anyway, who knew they were workshopping it and were thrilled to do so. And me champing at the bit, longing to come in on the process, but... You know, David's very wise, and he knew when would be the right moment. So we met in December, and the play has been through a process of many more changes and rewrites, uh, both before we started rehearsal, but especially once we started rehearsal. And and um, Joan and David, between them, in their extraordinary symbiotic relationship, um, came up with a number of edits of the play which is rather like editing a film in a in the on the avid or those wonderful old film cutting machines mm -hmm. uh it's it's a process making a new play is often i know and in this specific instance definitely it's a process but were they basically tightening it or or making other substantive changes to it well, there were tightenings, but there were also lightnings. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, and given that that Joan's focus and nuances and her whole way of writing is so specific, it's so laser-like in its clarity and its content, which is far from simple. Although she will express things sometimes in a wonderfully clear, simple way. 
but they still each sentence has a lot of layers um, layers within it no there was there was um, in fact a whole what we think of Joan and David and I and Scott Rudin as um, a chorus at the beginning of the Greek a Greek play that was written very late on mm. and that's one page of the play now you say you're not playing Joan Didion. This is essentially though her story of her of her husband's heart attack and her daughter's illness. Is it? Yes, but it's not a documentary. It's no, a no, play. No, no, and I understand yes. it's a play. Is it? Is it essentially true to life, or have there been some dramatic uh, embellishments or enhancements made to it? Well, I think that's a question you simply can't ask a uh -huh. playwright. Uh -huh. um, it's a it's a source of continuing interest and concern, and legitimately so, um, profoundly so. But much as anyone has indeed delved into Eugene O'Neill, who was the first American playwright um, of real play drama, which is quite astounding when you think of it, that American drama has, as far as playwrights considered, are concerned... Um, began with Eugene O'Neill and what a beginning mm. and of course it's very simple to trace to a certain extent um, how much is true within but I don't I find that an unfruitful search I understand of course that um, many literary people or literate people would wish to do so and it all throws light and raises questions in the case of Joan's play, this could be performed by any any actress in any country in any language, and should be, and I'm sure will be. Um, and it's not the concern of, of, you know, did this happen or not? I mean, I never questioned it because for me it's always been a play. For Joan, it's always been a play. Um, and I'm fascinated how we all tend to think, well... But didn't it all happen? Well, yes, two things definitely happened, which was to two human beings, John Gregory Dunn and Quintana Rudan. Quintana Rudan Michael, because she married. Um, they died, and they had a history together, the three of them. Those happened, but a play is much more than an account or a narrative. Let me ask you something about the staging because it struck me, and I, I certainly know that many other people were struck by it, which is the choice to have you so still in many ways for so much of the show. You are seated um, for a significant portion of, of the 90-minute running time. Was that something that evolved over the course of rehearsals and and what is it to to act with that stillness well if you were able to have a one of those slow moving films that slow down everything you'd see that in fact I'm moving almost all the time in that chair but in the chair yes mm. but you know you can dance in a chair <laughs> uh, well I can anyway um but I think it is objectively possible. Um, and uh, some of those movements 
um, a few of those movements have set and a few of them are not at all. I, they change, but I'm in the chair and then I get up. And when I get up, it's at a major, major shift in the play when she addresses the fact that her daughter is dead. We often talk with actors on this program about the fact that where a show starts when it begins performances is very different from where it is a few months in. Sometimes it's because of cast changes. Sometimes it's simply because the actors find new things. Now, you are obviously, again, playing on stage alone, but do you feel where you are interpreting this role is different from where people might have seen it back in March when you first started? Well, I know from people who've come to see it again that um, that it's enormously developed. And it's not my concern, you know, what are the differences. My concern is now. Um, and for them, well, they can see and they describe in their own way... Um, what changes they've they they perceive or have noted uh i mean certainly you know having played when well, now we're on about to have our eighty sixth perf- public performance not counting previews and um I am much more focused and much more um my stamina and physique are better and all sorts of things are more developed. Um, but basically, um, I'm always trying to explain, and I'd love to, to use this chance in talking to you to explain again. Um, this is a directed performance. Not only could I not have done it without David Hare, um, he's conducted as precisely... Jones writing um, which is specific if you read it on the page and it is published now on sale everywhere uh, you can see how it's set out it's it doesn't bear resemblance to anybody's um, form of writing if you just take how it's down on the page what's in it of course is the magic of Joan Didion but um if you then took, if you were a musician and were able to read uh, the conductor's score, say of uh, an overture or a Beethoven symphony, of course Beethoven wrote, as most of the composers, classic composers did, with some specific crescendos and specific ac- de- deaccelerandos and agitato, mosso. Um, And those are indications, but every conductor has a different interpretation of that score. And those who are really, really big music buffs know the differences. I I know that when I heard Baron Boyman, the Carnegie, three years ago play his Beethoven's on the piano, his Beethoven sonatas, Although I knew a number of these sonatas well, either from other players or because I'd tried to learn them at school, 
um, which doesn't count anyway. But I felt I was hearing them for the first time. And Barenboim says the music is not in the score. Well, figure that one out, anybody. But I think I know what he means. And this performance is and is not in the text. It's the inner and the outer and under changing circumstances of a, of a woman. When you first came to the project, was it daunting, the thought of a 90-minute one-person show? Oh, yes, very, yeah. yes. What was, your, mm. what was your reaction to that, and how did you deal with, with that? I, I, I spoke to David about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's always uh-huh. the best thing, speak to your director, particularly if you totally trust him or her. I've I've never had such incredible trust in a director, and I've worked with some directors I really admire, and would feel honoured to work with again. But um, David was exceptional in his analysis, in his power of not only giving a very precise indication of what's in there, what is in there. This is what you, you must go for. But he'd also give me practically. I'd say to David, well, how? Show me how. Because mm-hmm. that will help me really grasp it. So he would. And he was very funny very often. And he said, all right, back into David Hare's comedy class. <laughs> and um, because there is so much comedy in, in her play. Very much intentionally so, too, because she's got a wonderful, wonderful humor. <laughs> As you talk about John's question about solo performance, this is not the first time that you've done a solo show. You had done Wallace Shawn's The Fever in London a few yes, years I ago. Yes, I did. And, and of course, Samuel Beckett's No. So let's talk about The Fever because it gives us a segue to another current project of yours. When you did The Fever on stage, that Famously, when Wallace Shawn did it himself originally, he used to do it in people's living rooms. It was mm. very intimate. What was the setting when you did that play uh, in London? Was it in a theater, or were you doing the intimate performances that he had done? It was a very intimate performance with an audience of about, I think, 80 uh, <laughs> seats on uh, three sides of a square at the Chelsea Arts Centre, and it was directed by my brother, and of course I'd asked I've known Wallace for a long time and I'd asked Wally if he would let me do two performances in a series of Sunday performances of solo performances and uh, he said yes and my brother directed it and I was crazy about the play as written in the text Um, it's an extraordinary play it's certainly probably I don't remember how long it took when we did it, but it inspired me to think it should be a film. There should be more people seeing this and hearing it and following through this extraordinary psychological journey of this woman in a bathroom or in a sitting room, as you say, while he used to do it. Though, did you see it on Broadway? It was on Broadway at the Acorn, or off-Broadway, at the Acorn Theatre when I arrived. Didn't have a chance to see see him do it, but we should, yes. we should explain that. that was in, on the stage yeah. as well. Um, but years after he'd written, because he'd, origi- he'd done it, you know, I think, originally in the early 90s. And, oh, yes. And brought it back. Yes. But we should explain for our audience that 
you have, in fact, made a film of The Fever. It's fascinating to hear yes. you say that when you did it on stage, you were directed by your brother. The mm-hmm. film, which is running now on HBO, and I understand will be out on DVD soon, um, is directed by your son. Yes. So, Carlo Nero, yes. In, in the transition, obviously, from what it was on stage, and we should also explain, The Fever is the story of a woman's really social and political awakening to to a situation situations in the world that she hadn't really understood early on is that would you say that's a fair explanation of, of yes it? that she hadn't understood or thought she'd understood as much as she wanted to understand but the transition of playing it as one person on a stage and then playing it on film what did you hope, what did your son, who, who co-wrote the screenplay with Wallace Shawn, hope to, to achieve as it changed mediums? Well, to explore the change in the medium and its implications for the, his text, his story. Um, and what was very exciting, I'm thrilled that HBO t- um, greenlighted us to go ahead and shoot it, because... Carlo and Wallace uh, between them developed a script that uses both direct speaking directly to camera in the way that some early Bergman films do um, and animation to illustrate some of the narrative of uh, the woman it's a woman because I'm playing her uh, and she's called the woman and also actual scenes and the cinematic techniques which are change the dynamic and also uh, enhance the inner dynamic of what is basically a, a psychological journey there are some journeys involved that are you know have always been there in Wallace Shawn's text the fever but the main issue about his play is her psychological journey on uh, over 24 hours. And the, the storyline and the, the uh, title of the fever comes from this woman, the woman, as your character is called, who has a fever. She's laying on her bathroom floor in, a, in an underdeveloped country, a unnamed country, but one that is war-torn and very impoverished. And in the course of the fever, she's basically getting the message about life in general, about why is it that so many people are rich and have money, so many don't have money, why do some people make so much money for what they're doing, others don't make anything, what's going on in the world? That, that That's basically what she's realizing in the course of her fever. Yes, exactly, and realizing in an extraordinary lo- use of cinema techniques, sudden recollections of various of her close circle of friends, mm-hmm all of them different types of people, all of them with their different ideas of what democracy means, all of them with their different ideas about the situation of the poor, all of them with their different ideas about why some people have so much and so many people have so little. Uh, So you get these quick flash direct-to-camera interviews, as it were, of these different friends of hers and they're coming up into her mind and herself, her own conscience coming and they're sitting with her in the bathroom and asking her questions too 
and she doesn't like being asked questions. She likes to, or she likes to ask questions in the way she likes to ask questions, in the way of evasion, um, which brings a phrase of Joan Didion's to mind in the play. Notice the evasion there. Uh, when a mind can't handle uh, certain facts. Well, as, as I was as I was viewing the fever, I was struck by three things: your performance, as you say, some of it direct to camera, other dialogue with various other people, uh, part of a narration. Um, I was struck by the message of the movie itself, and also by the cinematic uh, cinematic techniques that are involved, which I thought were very cleverly and interestingly used. And it's not a um, not a continuum from beginning to end. It's various points of this woman's life. It's sitting, talking with a reporter, played by, of all people, Michael Moore. It's a very interesting uh, combination of, of ingredients. Yes, and indeed, and some wonderful actors. Um, Angelina Jolie, of course. Mm -hmm. The two scenes, I, three scenes I have with her are uh, a few wonderful days. And uh, but many many others. Um, one of our very best actors who you would have seen in a lot of films, Nadim Sawala, and uh, a whole range of actors who are friends of mine. And um, I don't know our so our general rather large spreading circle of um, you know all actors who did it for scale, mm -hmm. did it for nothing, and they're each and one has perhaps got a minute. Mm -hmm. as short as a minute screen time are absolutely terrific my sister-in-law's in it playing my friend Jean mm -hmm. um, who is an extraordinary moment of a character and uh, the lady that I play that was once Wallace himself uh, doesn't like to think that she's like her neighbour Jean <laughs> but she, then she begins to find that she's no different from her neighbor, Jean. Although apparently they say different things, she finds, well, I'm actually the same as my neighbor, Jean. Because so what thrills me is that it's still on demand on HBO and coming out soon on DVD. And uh, I'm really, really thrilled because I'm getting a lot of feedback and so HBO uh, a lot of young people uh, across the board are getting really excited about this film. Well, you mentioned... But all that's in Wallace yeah. Shawn's The Fever, published in that little book, available at drama bookshops. And um, what's so exciting is where theatre can go that a film can't go and where a film can, can go that theatre can't. And they are two different medium, and I love both mediums immensely. You mention the circle that was part of it, and obviously we'd be remiss in not talking about your origins as an actress coming out of now a multi-generational theatrical family, both before you and, and after you. Your father, Michael Redgrave, your mother, Rachel Kempson, um, were they looking for you and indeed your sister and your brother to, to follow in their footsteps? Or was that something that you came to on your own? I don't know. You know, with a family where you've got that much involvement with theatre, music, painting, all the arts, 
um, going back a good many generations. That is, that's basically how it is. You you stay in there. We because we have put it passed on through the male line, as it were. We've all got the name Redgrave, but there's so many young actors and actresses out there who, are in fact, the grandchildren of um, actors and actresses. It's it's it gets in your your blood because you're part of it all from so early on. And because I think it is an extremely compelling medium and one to be prized and cherished and nurtured and defended and supported uh, through thick and thin, through an awful lot of thin, as we all know, which is why we're so grateful that American Theatre Wing, you know, enlarges, tries to enlarge consistently the the area in which theatre can survive and develop and new writing develop which is of course one of our main purposes isn't it well having been born into a theatrical family what are some of your earliest memories of the theater of, of being either backstage going to the theater or your impressions of theater as a, as a child well my very earliest memory of my acting was I was about four years old and my brother was in the cast with me and and the um, boy who was uh, who was evacuated, as we all were, from London up into the country to during, try and get the, away from the bombs of World War Two, wrote a, a little play, and um, we not only enjoyed preparing the play and performing it, but we also had a serious objective, which was that our performance would raise money for the Merchant Seamen's Fund for the uh, families of the merchant seamen who were getting torpedoed by the Nazi submarines trying to get food into Britain across the Atlantic. So, you know, they were unpaid performances, um, which is a steady, uh, sad history of our profession. Um, but they were also exciting, those kind of performances that we did. The first performance that I saw in a theatre... Um, I believe chronologically, was uh, a play that my father was in called The Duke in Darkness, which was um, a really exciting play in which he got thrown over a parapet. And um, before we were taken to see it, um, I was taken on stage and shown that there was a mattress on the other side of his parapet <laughs> so that he would be safe in case I screamed out. <laughs> you know, Daddy! Daddy! Um, how, how old would you have been at this point? I've no idea. Uh, I, I, it's, I've written it about it and, of course, checked the dates, uh -huh. and I've forgotten them as speedily. They're there in, in um, the autobiography I wrote a good many years ago. About twelve years ago, it's it's all that somewhere <coughs> in the archives. But the point is, my children all were involved in filmmaking, you know, they, when they were still in push chairs, because uh, the milieu that we all moved in was, you know, just uh, I don't know how to put it. It's just you're a load of pros, and pros are families. And films get made in holidays. Um, and what do you do with the children? You rope them in and you put them into a scene. <laughs> you know, and they, of course, think we're in a scene. I mean, you'd have to 
go with a microscope to realize that they are there some of the time. So it's kind of a good but, way for parents to keep tabs on the kids. Well, it's a good way of the children to enjoy themselves, and of course, more than that, which is to come to the serious and and um, thrilling side of theatre, is that as more and more schools are uh, getting courses and workshops for kindergarten age children, as well as up through towards college, is that um, as well as wherever the professionals can get it, convince prison authorities to try and get them to realize that the young people need to do drama in the prisons. Theatre is, in fact, a fund fundamentally become part of the sci science of psychosocial therapy and war drama therapy, uh, ranging from real-time war therapy to the therapy which is also a practical program of how to spread consciousness about AIDS and to help prevent AIDS. So I've become very much involved in, in that side of work in various situations and I'm not a professional at it but I can help support the professionals who are at it. So those children being part of it is the kind of way we all became involved. Um, but now it's a, it's a serious pedagogical science and, and schools are shouting for funds so that they can have the time to uh, have special people uh, work with children on creating plays or scenes, developing them from their, their own stories of their own lives or from fairy tales or whatever but make writing their own stories which is what's so important you talked earlier talking about magical thinking about the trust that you had in david hare you have had the opportunity we already mentioned directed by your brother directed by your son and you've had the opportunity to act with many members of your family is there a special trust when you are on stage or on film with members of your family? Does it give you, is it is it a different dynamic than working simply with another actor? Well, yes and no. The same way as um, when you're working with other actors to whom you're not related. Sometimes there's a special dynamic, sometimes there isn't, but it's okay, you know. Um Sometimes I didn't. I felt very frightened working with my father, because I he was very demanding, and he was like you know the director never left, <laughs> and I liked the director very much. But my father would give notes, and he would treat me the same as everybody else. And the fact that he was on stage with me and giving me notes later was quite was quite tough. It was the best master class I've ever had in my life. It doesn't mean you like the master class, but it was. I, I consider myself very lucky that he, you know, gave that scrupulous attention. Then, when you were outside the theater, you were not on stage anymore with your father. At home, would it, would it carry over at home? Would he give you further notes over dinner at night? Or? No, we're professionals. Uh, so you, you <laughs> professionals leave the know out. that you know you you work how the best way is uh -huh. to work. The best uh -huh. way to work 
is um, to study, hmm. to do whatever exercises are necessary for one's whole expansion of one's work, piano, dance, mm -hmm. singing, voice exercises, etc., gymnastics, you name it. Mm -hmm. um, the field is fairly wide and, um, you know, most actors are very engaged in doing that work all the time, whether during a job or whether when there isn't a job. Um, I think I have missed the point of your question. I'm so sorry. No, just basically once you are done with the performance or the rehearsal. Oh yes, does it carry on into home? the home? No, yeah. no, never. No, I, I, I would have hated that. Um, and you went back to being just father daughter at home, as opposed to professionals working. Well, he together. was mostly acting in the theatre anyway, so he wouldn't be at home, would he? <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, this is the way. The, the fathers and mothers are not there much. Uh -huh. um, and then once you start earning your own way, you leave home. Mm -hmm. um, so the one thing that we did, which of course was just wonderful fun, but brilliant, is that when we were very young, um, every Sunday and over certain periods, whenever they were home, uh, Michael was a brilliant pianist and he was not only at classical music, but he was crazy about American musicals, so he'd always be, um, if there was a new musical out, we'd, he'd make sure he got from his American friends the song sheets, and we'd sing the songs, and we'd also sing the song sheets from um, musicals of bygone years. Mm -hmm. And, of course, most of them were American, a few French, um, some German because he knew German well so the Schubert songs are incredible so we used to get round the piano after lunch if they were home um, and that was that was something regular but that's loving loving um, loving the, the, the it was our equivalent of today's generation we you know there wasn't Music that was very exciting to listen to on the radio, except for classical music. Mm -hmm. um, folk songs hadn't got onto the radio when I was young, um, so we weren't. That all came later, and actually, a lot of it came via America. Mm. Now, you mentioned the word dance. At one point, before you became an actress, you said, "I read you wanted to be a dancer, mm. but you were too tall. Mm. You're five feet eleven, mm. and you couldn't become a dancer." No, I couldn't, which I thought was a total tragedy, but of course it wasn't a tragedy for anybody, nor for me either, though that is what I wanted. Um, but all the years that my parents paid for me to have the classes um, were terrific for later on beginning to work with other dance teachers, one, because I loved to work with them and I wanted to, and two, because some of the work I did needed dance. So I did Isadora and had a wonderful Austrian dance dance teacher there um, who was also a choreographer with an extraordinary history called Litz Pisk. And I worked with her on some theatre productions like As You Like It, the first major Shakespearean role I played, Rosalind. 
you mentioned Isadora, and of course you had the opportunity to play her in two different vehicles, both on stage and on film, because yes. you also did Mart- Martin Sherman's play when she danced. Obviously, if you couldn't be a dancer, you, you had the opportunity to play her and a character that interested you. But as John said in the introduction, clearly a character that interested you to have played five different times, Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra. What drew you to that play and what made you want to keep exploring it as an actress and indeed as a director as well? Well, that's what fascinated me was what is the play actually about and why do so many productions just sort of gasp and give up the ghost even when with magnificent actors playing all the various wonderful roles that are in the play. And um, I had a very specific conception of what the play was about. And you can't tell a director how to direct a play. You know, a director has to have their own thoughts and their own objectives. And um, But you can't tell a director, this is what it's about and this is how I want you to direct it. You can't do it. It's be nonsense. It would be so unproductive and uncreative. So eventually I came to think, okay, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to direct this myself. So I did. And some of the productions were really good and some of them weren't so very good. Um we started off in London on the anniversary of the defeat of fascism. We chose a whole lot of plays and put them on and uh mortgaged ourselves to the hilt this was my brother created this company with my sister-in-law Kika Markham and some very wonderful actors Malcolm Tierney myself joined in and we chose plays ranging from um, the fire raisers uh, to Antony and Cleopatra to foreign companies come in, some Russian actors were invited in who were friends of ours to do UNESCO's The Chairs, a Palestinian company, an Israeli company. I mean, it was quite an extraordinary event. And I did a not very good production, but cut my teeth on it, as it were, and realized at some point in Verona, where we did an open stage production in the sun, that I'm absolutely convinced that plays should be performed in blazing sunlight for a period of time to strip them away of the mania for effects because if a lot of effects are being worked on what the play's about and the actors haven't got enough time to be worked on and it's an awfully simplistic point of view and couldn't apply in a lot of circumstances but boy, does it apply a lot of the time. Well, you got to play, you played Prospero in The Tempest for the Globe in, in mm-hmm. London, correct? So that mm-hmm. was also in the blazing sun some of the time. Well, actually, it was in the blazing rain <laughs> most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> I've played a lot in the open air um, and in rain, too. There was one moment, wonderful moment at the, at the Shakespeare's Globe down there on the bank when... Um, at the very moment that I, as Prospero, raised my magic stick, the lightning struck at just the right moment in my speech. The mm. audience went wild and clapped and cheered. 
and I smiled at them and I raised it again and obediently as lightning struck again (laughs) (laughs) I mean you know those are it was rather fun it was rather fun but with Cleopatra and Antony um I sti- I wrote a, a book which was published by Faber's in the publishing company in London about Antony and Cleopatra, which I think is very interesting to read um, because I see Antony being the great part. Now, most actors don't think Antony is the greatest part that they would choose to play out of the Shakespeare's canon, and I think it's because, you know, the productions got it wrong what Antony's about and the play's about because it's an extraordinary part brilliant part and I have missed some of the great productions but I was eventually thrilled to have and felt I'd been given a gift that people trusted me enough to think there's going to be something really interesting come out of this Antony and Cleopatra and most times I didn't feel I'd played her as well as other Cleopatras, but I felt I had revealed the play better than a lot of other productions. Can you explain that a little bit more, what, what you think the play's really about, why most I can't, because it is quite uh-huh. quite deep, <laughs> oh, actually. Okay. And, um, and I can't... Uh, I'd love to, and if ever the American theatre wing would like me to give a talk about Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, <laughs> I would be thrilled to. But I can't summarise it um, except to say that the starting point of it is that it had to be set in a setting with costumes and whatever the decor that was quite clearly approximate to 1605, 1606. That it absolutely anathema to the existence of the play, I mean, which I shouldn't use a religious term for that, but um, when it's divided into Egypt, voluptuousness, sexuality, and Rome, ice, cold, rigid, puritanical. That is not what the play is about at all. And so I made the starting point the time when it's approximately said to have been written and the empire building that was going on at the time and the factional fighting within that empire that was going on at the time and most specifically um, what was going on the, the tremendous fights which were lethal within the reign of Elizabeth I and James I most especially in James the First, lethal fighting. We're hopscotching around your career because in the limited time available to us, we can't possibly talk about <laughs> everything. But I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you about your Tony-winning performance in Long Day's Journey and Tonight a few seasons ago. Uh, you touched on O'Neill earlier as the first great American playwright, and certainly it is his Well, it's the first American playwright, period. I, I, I'm not the one who s- proclaimed this first. You sure. know, I've been told this by American writers. The first American playwright. Plenty. The rest was all melodrama, so American writers tell me. <laughs> so I was sort of struck by this. It struck me in a heap because I hadn't thought 
of that before. <laughs> but plunging into that play, which is a play about a family with, with so many demons, what was the experience of, of working with that extraordinary cast, Brian Dennehy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Robert Sean Leonard, and and finding your way into... And Fiona Toibin. And Fiona yes. Toibin as, as the maid. Um, finding your way into into that that real heart of darkness of that family. Well, that's a long journey. <laughs> that's a long journey. Uh, basically, we had such a wonderful cast, and playing Mary, um, Brian Tenehy, you know, was a, a wonderful, wonderful actor to work with. Not only in his, you know, his way he works with everybody, but. Uh, the time he would give to me t- to discussing O'Neill and uh, women in O'Neill's dramas and Mary Tyrone specifically. Well, Brian's quite the student of O'Neill. Oh, yeah, yeah. I will say so. It was wonderful. So um, that was essentially very essential to me. And also talking with... Um, with Ted Mann, Theodore Mann, who did one of the first productions, uh, one of them. Uh, he didn't direct the one I saw in 1955. I saw Long Day's Journey Into Night with with Frederick March and Florence Eldridge and Jason Robards Jr. That was and the American was premiere. Dillman. It was the American premiere. Yeah. Now... And that was the first big full-scale production that had ever been done of Long Day's Journey Into Night um, back then. And yes, it was 55, the beginning of the winter season of 1955. Had it struck you at that time? I mean, obviously, you were you'd already, you were beginning your career then. Did you think that years from now I want to play this woman? No, good heavens, no. I don't think one thinks things like that. <laughs> no. I, I knew when I saw, when I was a child and I saw children in our English um, musical performances of based on fairy tales, which we called pantomimes, I knew that I wished desperately I would like to have been a child dancer and a child actress, and I couldn't understand why my parents weren't at all eager and kept talking solemnly about finishing my schooling. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want to finish my schooling. I wanted to be like Eileen Atkins and be a member of one of the dance troops of kids, you know, that even during the war were going around doing the dance routines, the tap routines, the snowballs, the jumping jacks, <laughs> the, or jumping beans, whatever they were doing with their little tin trays and and their tap shoes or doing their acrobatic leaps. Uh, that's what I wanted. <laughs> that's what was my big dream, then to be supplanted by possibly being in the Cour de Ballet of Swan Lake. It was the summit of my hopes as far as that was concerned. And later, if I could be in a Shakespearean repertory theatre company like Stratford-on-Avon, I mean, that's that's where my mind was entirely through, through uh, also through drama school. But remember, this was all before England changed and drama changed in England. When I, when I was watching um, 
all the plays, all the new plays that were on, with, uh, which have now become American classics. In 1955 on Broadway, I saw a theatre that just blasted away all the old inheritance which I adored of the red curtains and the live orchestra playing and, you know, a very different approach to the classics and to Shakespeare in particular. And to modern drama, we hadn't got any modern drama that was about life, whereas America had. Mm. And I and a number of, a couple of students started a theatre magazine to try and, you know, spread the word in our school that, you know, there were plays that really had to be studied and seen and there was new to contemporary theatre and sort of open a way of this is the kind of theatre we want. And at the same time, the Royal Court Theatre opened with Look Back in Anger. It all happened all at once, but England came after America. Hmm. Well, you had only And so did Russia. You had only up to that point seen English productions. This was your first trip to New York to see American yes, theatre. Yes. So that was obviously... Well, I'd seen English productions of whatever, whatever. Right. Mostly Shakespeare and, and some worthy, but, mm-hmm. you know... So that was a big influence on, on, on your life, obviously. Oh, enormous influence, yeah. yes. As were American musicals, yeah. because they, um, we hadn't seen modern dance in England. This is all an inheritance of the war and many, many other factors as well, because theatres had to close and because there hadn't been for a long while a cross-fertilisation um, in England, which badly needed mm-hmm. it. And so when the Royal Court Theatre, following actually in the footsteps of Joan Littlewood and Stratford East and their extraordinary productions of the classics, which my father made me go and see because he knew... Th- and I came back a grumpy, stupid little 13-year-old <laughs> or 14-year-old, whatever I was, saying... Oh, no, I mean, you know, it was hopeless. I mean, there's no costumes worth talking about. And uh, and he listened and let me rant away about what I'd seen. And he said, I never want to hear you talk like this ever again. And I'm getting you seats for the next. And as I listened to him and he explained why, I suddenly, what I'd seen changed because he was throwing light on the fact that I only knew a certain kind of theatre, which he himself had grown and developed in. But he, unlike me, he'd had the advantage of having some of his closest colleagues coming from all over, escaping from Hitler's Europe, Mm -hmm. and American colleagues as well. So there was in him a a tremendous cross-fertilisation as there was in some of the other actors of his generation, like Peggy Ashcroft. Mm-hmm. And they fought to get Paul Robeson a visa to mm-hmm. come over and act in 1959, play Othello. Mm-hmm. Well, other than your I'm, parents, yeah, other than your parents, both actors, of course, who was the other biggest influence on you professionally, would you say? Any particular people? Yes, my singing teacher, Jani Strasser. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was a coach at Glyndebourne until shortly before he died. Hmm. And um, also Litz Pisk, this extraordinary, wonderful woman who, um, well, 
influential in more ways than I can begin to say, but profound influence on my understanding of of what dance can be, what theatre can be, and what I how I should be thinking of working. Well, as we wrap up, I just want to reiterate what we started at the beginning, talking about the year of magical thinking. You're currently appearing on Broadway, solo performance, running through the end of August. And on that note, Vanessa, yes. thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Oh, thank you both very, very much. Thank you, Vanessa. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing, more than 400 hours of material, is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.